I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles again to Luke chapter 10. We've been teaching a series on the subject of authority. And uh, for the last several weeks, we've been talking about the the boundaries or really the limitations of authority. And uh, we felt it was uh, an important thing to do because so many times people um, see a scripture and without understanding of other scriptures and how the, uh, the, what the context was or the meaning that God intended, that they'll just kind of get this idea that, well, we ought to just be able to run off and just do everything. But we found out that authority, where it is absolute in the life of the individual, is not absolute in somebody else's life or where somebody else's rights and will is concerned. And so we talked about that for several weeks, and, and uh, we've been uh, showing the, the limitations of authority. But this morning, I want to get back over onto the positive side. Not that the other was intended to be negative, and I hope that's not the way it was taken. But, um, uh, but there are limits. And, uh, and if you just take a scripture out of context, like, for example, Luke 10, 19, which is our text scripture, Jesus said, Behold, I give unto you authority, power in the King James. But it, it's two Greek words in the, the translated power in this, uh, this verse. The first means authority. The second means power or ability. So he said, Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power, ability of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Well, some people will take that and they'll say, Okay, well, bless God, I'm going to take authority over my husband's uh, situation. He's not living for God, so I'm going to take authority over that in Jesus' name. Well, you can't do that. You've got authority in your life, but he has authority in his life. Well, I, I'm just going to take authority over, over what I see happening in the political scene in our nation. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to pray and, and righteousness is going to be exalted in our nation. Well, what are you going to do about the rest of the church that's praying for the other side? You can't take authority over their will. You can't usurp somebody else's authority. And so we've tried to c- cover some of those things. We've tried to deal with, with, uh, with that side of it to show where your authority lies and to what degree you can extend your authority. Now, when it comes to loved ones, sometimes you find out what the extent of your authority is in prayer. I know that in praying with, uh, with some of my loved ones, some of my extended family, I've had to go to prayer and say, Lord, I don't know what I can do here. I know what I would do if this was me. But with the situation they're in, I'm not sure how far my authority goes. So I spend some time praying in other tongues. I spend some time seeking the Lord about that in prayer. And then all of a sudden I know what to do. Well, if you, and, and there have been some cases, in some instances, with a, with a first cousin of mine, there was something that I took authority over and it changed almost overnight in his life. Now, he didn't know what changed it. He didn't know what happened. Had an opportunity to talk with him, had an opportunity to share with him and asked him. You know, did such and such happen to you recently? And he said, well, yeah. How'd you know about that? And I told him. I said, well, I got something in prayer and I prayed about that. But there are other situations, similar situations, where you go in prayer and I haven't found any place to do anything. Well, how do you define that? You can't, you certainly can't make a hard and fast rule. Here's how it works. With first cousins, you can do something. With second cousins, it's too bad for them. How do you get some of that? Well, a lot of it has to do with the position that they're in. A lot of it has to do with their spiritual condition at the time and the authority that they have exercised or failed to exercise on their own behalf. So this morning I want to talk to you a little bit further about how to use your authority and what the source of that authority really is. Now in Luke 10, chapter 10 and verse 19, again, Jesus said, Jesus gave unto his disciples uh, a commission. He commissioned them to go into the cities that he was going to come to and to tell them that he was coming. But he didn't say, tell them Jesus is coming. He said, tell them the word. Preach to them the word. Tell them the kingdom of God is coming to you. 
Jesus didn't just go say, now tell them that I'm on my way. He went and told them to preach the word. Now, it was through the obedience of these 70 disciples that went and did exactly what Jesus said. He went, they went into the cities. They healed the sick. They, they preached that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto them. They did the things that he told them to do. Then they come back and they, re, they rejoiced saying, Lord, we found out that even the devils are subject to us in your name. Now, if you look at the things that Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, he didn't say one word about casting out devils. Not one word. But they found, and I personally believe, these 70, when he commissioned the 70, he didn't have to go looking for 70 people. These were people that were with him regularly. Most Bible scholars agree that there were anywhere from 100 to 150 people that were around Jesus and traveled with him and stayed with him in most situations, not in every, every case, but in most situations, stayed with him all the time. And, and you can certainly see when he commissioned the 70, he didn't have to go searching. There were people right there. Well, he commissioned them to do things that they had seen him do already. But not one word is made in Luke chapter 10 in their commission. Not one word is made about casting out devils, yet they did what they had seen Jesus do before. And they came back and said, hey, this even works on the devils for us. It indicates that they weren't sure that it would because he didn't mention something about casting out devils. That's when Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. In other words, he's saying, of course it works for you. Anytime you use my name, it'll work for you. Why? Because the authority is in his name. I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. And that's when he said, behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. If you were wondering before what your authority was regarding the devil, let me clear it up for you. I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you, not your neighbor. Hurt you. Hurt you. In other words, you have ultimate authority in your life. Now turn back with me to uh, Matthew chapter 8. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to cover it again and go a little bit further and maybe a different direction as well. Matthew chapter 8 tells us the story of Jesus finding a man that had great faith. I don't know about you, but the stories of people having success mean more to me than the people that failed. If I want to find failure stories, I can, all I have to do is look around. I want to find out what makes it work. Don't you? Too much of the church world seems to be satisfied with, well, it just won't work. And so they don't examine things that do. So Jesus comes upon a man. He's a centurion. We'll start reading in verse 5. When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should come under my roof. So this isn't about him then, is it? This isn't about him. How many times have you had the devil tell you you're not worthy about something? Did you notice that the man's consideration of his unworthiness had no effect on the blessing of God realized? Folks, your unworthiness or what the devil tells you, how you've missed it, that has no bearing on the things of God either. I hate to tell you this, but it's not really not about you. Well, I wish the church would get a hold of that. Because everything the devil wants to talk to you about is you. Get him talking about the word. You'll find he won't stay around for that conversation. Get him talking about Jesus and his sacrifice and what Jesus did. He won't hang around for that. But he wants to talk about you, all right. 
You know what you did. He's, centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. But speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Now, Jesus says about this guy's condition, about this guy's position, he said, I haven't found this kind of faith. Jesus marvels and said, I haven't found this kind of faith in Israel. Apparently, Jesus would have expected to find this kind of faith in Israel. They're the ones that had the old covenant. They're the ones that had the promises that God had given to to Abraham. They're the ones that should be realizing the things that are still in effect. Jesus said, I hadn't found this kind of faith, no, not in Israel. But this guy has great faith. Jesus marvels because of this great faith of the centurion. Now, what caused this man to have this great faith? So many times in the church world, you hear people say, yeah, well, Pastor Mike, pray for me. So I'll have more faith. Well, that wouldn't do any good. That's not how faith comes. Well, I'm just praying, Pastor Mike, that I'll have faith enough for this. Well, you're wasting your prayer time. That's not how faith works or how faith comes. Notice what was the foundation for this man's great faith. Notice what caused him to have great faith. He said, speak the word only and my servant shall be healed for. For. That means here's the basis. Here's the reason. Here's the because. For I'm a man under authority, having servants and soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and do something. He does it. I say to another and come and he comes. I tell my servants, do this at the house and they do it. What's he saying? He's saying, I recognize you have authority over sickness and disease. You couldn't do the stuff you're doing except that you had authority over sickness and disease. So speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. And that's what caused Jesus to marvel. Now, folks, I've made this statement before, but I want to keep making it. I want it to sink in. The key to great faith is understanding authority. And notice that his understanding of authority had nothing to do with him. He didn't say, I have great faith because I'm worthy. That's where the devil wants to get you. He wants to say, oh, I don't think you can believe God for your healing. That might work for somebody else, and the other stories might be true, but that's not going to work for you. You know what you've done. You know how bad you've messed up. You know how unworthy you are. It has nothing to do with it. Authority has nothing to do with the, the condition of the individual. It has nothing to do with failures or successes in the past. But authority is always the foundation for great faith. You will never find anybody that's great in faith or strong in faith that doesn't have an understanding of authority. At least at the authority of the word. The authority of the word. Now, what is, the, what is this man looking to, for to trigger Jesus' authority over sickness? He says, speak the word only. How did the disciples, the 70 in Luke chapter 10, found out that the devils were subject to them in, in the name of Jesus? Because they spoke in the name of Jesus. They spoke in the name of Jesus. Folks, the foundation for every bit of authority, the foundation for every bit of faith is always the word of God. How many times in the Old Testament did God say, if you will do or if you will obey or if you will keep my commands, then these blessings will come upon you? Hundreds. Why? Because it's the authority of the word that brings about the supernatural result. How many times does the Bible tell us in the New Testament to be doers of the word and not hearers only or things to that effect? How many times does the Bible tell us to put the word of God first in our lives? How many times does the Bible tell us that it will be conformed to the image of God through renewing our minds to the word? And that will bring about the good and acceptable and perfect will of God in our lives. Folks, it's always about the word. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. It's always about the word. The word is God's authority. 
Well, Pastor Mike, how do we know? I mean, Jesus was the Son of God. How do we know that we have authority over sickness? Because the Word of God says so. Yeah, but how do we know that we can have victory in life? Because the Word of God says so. Yeah, but how do we know that, that, that the same authority that the, the disciples used in Luke chapter 10 will work for us too? Because the Bible says so. Now, a lot of people want to argue about whether or not the Bible should be believed. That's a ridiculous argument as far as I'm concerned. Too much of the church world wants to argue about, is the Bible true? Well, if the Bible wasn't true, how did you get saved? The Bible says you're born again by the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. That means you can't be born again any other way. Paul goes to great detail, to great lengths in Romans chapter 10 to tell us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. But how can you hear without somebody to tell you or preach the gospel? Preach the Word, in other words. If you don't hear the Word of God, you can't get saved. Yet people, after they make Jesus their... Well, they say Jesus is the Lord of their lives. Really what they've done is they've chosen Jesus to be their Savior, not their Lord. Big difference. But once people make Jesus their Savior, then they get into these intellectual arguments. Well, can the Bible really be believed? After all, it was written by men. Yeah, men that were moved by the Holy Ghost. Well, you know, there's just so many contradictions in the Bible. Show me one. Please, somebody show me one. I've heard that all my life. Show me one. I can show you contradictions in the translations. I can show you contradictions in the way the King James translates it or another version translates it, but you can't find any contradiction in the Bible. It's not there. It's just not there. And people come up with the stupidest things. And there are all these Old Testament archaic things. Well, but the Old Testament said this. Give me a break. Seriously? Had a Facebook conversation with a fellow the other day. And he said, well, one of the things I've always had a problem with the Bible is it says you can't wear wool and linen at the same time or else you have to be killed. That's worth eternity over. I'm the, you know. You got me? Well, if you look at what the Bible says, it's talking about only the priest under the old covenant. Only the priest could wear linen and wool and the mix, and that had to do with their special garments. It was to set them apart. And so it's the Bible telling people under the old covenant, don't wear something that makes you look like something you're not. Don't wear something that makes you look like you're standing in the priest's office because you step in the office of somebody else. That doesn't work out well for you. But people use the stupidest things. Well, but the Old Testament says this. I remember hearing a political speech once before where somebody's saying, well, what Bible verse do we go by? Do we go by the Old Testament that says that homosexuals should be stoned? Should we go by where the Bible says in the New Testament that it's forgiven? What should we go by? And I think to myself, dear God, dear God, dear God. This guy's claiming to be a Christian and using the Bible for this? Folks, the Bible is true. You can believe it now or you can believe it later. But there will come a point in time where every person that has ever lived will know the Bible is true. Now, what does the Bible say? Well, notice Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, folks, this is a guy that's been beaten. He's been run out of town. He's been imprisoned. He's been stoned. 
left for dead. He's been shipwrecked. I mean, he, any, any area, any means of trouble that you could possibly imagine this guy's experienced. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Boy, I wish that could be said of the church world at large. You know why the church is in such a mess? Because they're ashamed of the gospel. Oh, they may be saved, but they won't live it in their lives. They may be saved, all right. They may expect heaven to be their home, but they won't put it first in their lives. They won't put it first place. I heard Brother Hagin say for years and years and years, almost 30 years, I heard Brother Hagin say the greatest need of the body of Christ is to renew their mind to the word. You know, that, you know why that is? The reason why is because the greatest need that the body of Christ has, the greatest need that any Christian has is to put the word of God first in their life. Everything else is just lip service. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Well, why not, Paul? Now, you realize that the gospel of Christ he's talking about is not just the message that Jesus died for our sins. He's talking about the word of God as a whole. Paul said, we know this because Paul used the same word gospel to say that the whole world would be judged by my gospel. Man, that's a pretty stout thing to say. You better know what you're talking about if you're going to talk like that. Paul said, the whole world will be judged by my gospel. What was Paul's gospel? What does he mean? Paul wasn't the only one that preached Jesus as as crucified on the cross and risen from the dead. What's he talking about? He's talking about who we are in Christ. He's talking about the revelation that the word of God, the letters, the Pauline epistles. He's talking about the revelation that it gives us of who we are in Christ Jesus. So the gospel can't just be the message that Jesus died on the cross. But instead, because he died on the cross, who you are now and what belongs to you as a a believer. Someone made righteous by the blood of Jesus. That's the gospel of Christ that he's talking about. We could summarize it or or, or, uh, use another term to say, I'm not ashamed of the word of God. He means exactly the same thing. Because Paul wasn't the only one that was inspired to write. James was inspired when he wrote. John was inspired in the letters he wrote. If there were other writers, if there was another author, like, for example, the book of Hebrews, I believe it was Paul, but my, if it had been somebody else, that's just as inspired as anybody else's letter. So the gospel of Christ includes those letters and those truths as well. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Oh, if we could just get the power of God in our lives. Here's how. He said the word of God is the power of God. The word of God is the power of God. This word power is the word dunamis. It means ability. The word of God, the gospel of Jesus, who you are in Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Oh, yeah, Pastor Mike, unto salvation. Sure, it's the power of God to get saved, to be forgiven from sins. Look up the word. The word salvation is the word sozo. It means to rescue. It means to deliver. It means to make safe, it means to make sound, and it means to heal. That's what the word sozo, the word salvation, means in Romans chapter chapter 1 and verse 16. Well, Pastor Mike, I need God to deliver me. The word's your answer. I need to be rescued. The word's your answer. Oh, I, I just need safety in my life, safety and security in my life. The word's your answer. Well, my mind has just been giving me such a hard time. I just need soundness in my mind or soundness of thought. The word's your answer. Well, Pastor Mike, I just need to be healed in my body. The word's your answer. 
That's what Paul is saying. That's part of what you're going to be judged by. Paul is saying the word is your answer. Why? Because the word of God is the authority of God in action. Now turn back with me to the Old Testament. I want to show you something. Turn back with me. Let's start in Genesis chapter 12. Let's look at Abraham. I'm going to run through the life of Abraham real quickly. Now we know Abraham is called the father of the faith, right? Romans chapter 4 tells us that we're to follow Abraham's example. And it tells us a story of him when he was 99 years old, almost 100 years old. The story of how he believed God to have a child way after his and his wife's body had stopped functioning, functioning in a sexual manner so that they were able to have children. And it tells us that he became fully persuaded. He was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able to also to perform. That's Romans 4 verse 20. That's what we're to follow. That's the example that we're to follow. But let's look real quickly at the life of Abraham and see where he started. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and out of thy father, or from thy kindred and not from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curses thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You know who Abraham, uh, you know who Abram, God hadn't changed his name yet, to Abraham. There came a point in time in Abram's life that God inserted a part of his name, the holy part of his name into Abram's life or Abram's name. In other words, God began to identify Abram by himself, which is exactly the way you're identified in Christ. Same thing was true for him. That's true for you now in Jesus. It was fulfilled by the work of Jesus. Abram was an idol worshiper. Abraham was not a Jew when God found him. God picked him out of nowhere. For what, for as far as we can tell, for no apparent reason other than he wanted to show himself strong to somebody. You're talking about hitting life's jackpot. This was the lottery before there was a lottery. Abraham hit the jackpot because God appears to him and says, okay, do what I tell you to do and here's what I'll do for you. So he tells him what to do. He tells him to leave Haran, the land that he was living in, the city that he was living in. He took all of his substance, his nephew Lot and his substance. They came, we don't know that it was, it, the Bible doesn't indicate to us that it was great substance, but they had something. And so they left and they started traveling. And God brought them to where he wanted them to go. Now, the first thing that happened after God told Abram, go where I tell you to go, it says there was a great famine in the land. Folks, that's nearly always the way it works. When God tells you to step out and obey him on something, there's always a famine waiting for you somewhere. Now, that's where most people give up and go back home. But there was a famine in that land, and so God directed Abram down into Egypt. And the Bible says that God blessed him in in great measure because in chapter 13, it says that he brought him up out of Egypt. Now, the reason he came out of Egypt is because the story of uh, Pharaoh and uh, Sarah, his wife, Abraham told everybody, well, she's my sister because I don't want you to kill me and take take her away from me. Apparently, Abram married up when he married Sarah. So he was concerned about everybody killing him to get his wife. So he just told Pharaoh, well, no, she's my sister. So Pharaoh says, well, she's your sister. Now she's mine. And it talks about how all the trouble came upon Pharaoh's house, and he knew what the cause was. He goes back to Abram and said, why'd you lie to me? Well, I, you know, 
I'm a new Christian. I just kind of lie sometimes. Probably. It's not like the guy's living godly yet. And so Pharaoh sends him away. He says, get out of my country. Get out of, every, out of where you are. Go away. I don't want any more trouble because of you or your wife. And then chapter 13 tells us how he came out of Egypt. Verse 1, Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the south. Verse 2, and Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. So from the time that he leaves with his substance in chapter 12 and verse 5, Now he's very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Now what's the significance there? Well, he becomes so great that he and Lot have to split up. Their servants start fighting with each other over grazing territory and and land and, and water and wells and stuff like that. So Lot decides, well, okay, I'll go to the city. I'll go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram said, I'll take whatever is left. You pick where you want to go, I'll take what's left. Folks, if you don't ever remember anything else, remember this. A man of faith takes what's left. Abram didn't say, hey, I'm the one with the covenant. You're along for the ride. I'll pick where I want to go. No, instead he said to to Lot, you pick where you want to go. I'll take what's left. So he lifted up his eyes once once he went the other direction. It says he lifted up his eyes. Because the Lord told him, verse 14, Genesis 13, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after that lot was separated from him, lift up your eyes and look now from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall your seed be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I'll give it unto you. Sounds like what he told Joshua and the rest of the children of Israel, everywhere you put the soles of your feet, that'll be yours. So he says, take a walk. Walk over everything of it. Then it tells us about how Abram went to, to, to rescue his nephew Lot because there was a king that came out, five kings actually, that came out against uh, the cities of Sodom and uh, Gomorrah and took Lot and, and all the substance and all the people and all that kind of stuff. And Abram gathers an army out of his servants. And his army, his servant army, goes and defeats those five kings. Now, they didn't outnumber them. He had something like 314, something like that, of his own servants that he used for his army, but that still didn't outnumber them. But folks, you need to understand, when you've got a blessing of God, when you've got an agreement, when you've got the word of God and a, and a, and a relationship with God, you don't have to outnumber your enemies to win. So he goes and takes everything back. He captures everything back. Now we see that his attitude about his stuff is something that should be admired. And that is in chapter 14, it says, uh, verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, tithes of all. Now, folks, this is the first time you see tithing. And you don't see it because God commanded it. You see it because Abram did it as a memorial to the blessing of God on his life. That's why we're to follow the principle of tithing today. That's why it's not a law. It's not a command. It's not a something that you do or else. It's something that you choose to do to honor God because of the blessings that he's brought to you. And the Bible says that when you do that and you honor God and put him first in your life with your substance, it says God will bring a greater blessing on you in return. 
So many times people want to argue about stuff. Well, do we have to tithe? Nope, you don't. Is God mad at you if you don't? No, of course not. Well, I just don't see the point. Okay. Me, I see the point. I see a very great point in having the windows of heaven opened unto me. I see a great point in having the blessing of God poured out upon me in such measure that I can't contain it. I see a great blessing and a great point to having the, revi- the devourer rebuked for my sake. I see the point. But not everybody does. Well, I, that's Old Testament. I just don't believe we have to do that anymore. Okay. I'm not going to argue with anybody better. It is mentioned in the New Testament, so it must have transcended the Old Covenant. But have it your way. You want to live according to the world system? (laughs) Good luck with that, pal. I want to live supernaturally. And it's only the word and obedience to the word that causes that to happen. Thank you. Oh, was that not an amen? So it says, Abram gave Melchizedek tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take your goods to yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up my hand. Please notice this. Now we don't know how much, uh, how long this is after Abram uh, first met the Lord. When God first appears to him in Genesis chapter 12, he's 75 years old. There's no indication to us how long he's been walking with God until this happens. It's got to be a couple of years, but we don't know how long. It could be up to 10 years, but we don't know for sure. We know it's not more than 10 years because of some things that tells us after. But he could have been walking with God up until 10 years. The point that I want you to see is from where he first started with God to where he has now progressed to God, his attitude is completely different. He's gaining confidence in the things of God and the blessing of God on his life. He's gaining confidence in what God has told him and what obedience to his word brings. So he says, I've left my hand up to the the God of heavens. I've lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread even to a shoe latchet. That means a shoestring, shoelace. And that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say that I have made Abraham rich. He said, I'm not willing to have anything of yours for the sake of you not being able to say to other people that you did something to add to my wealth. What is that telling us? That's telling us that Abraham is saying, I want everybody to know that what I've got is because God gave it to me. Boy, I wish that was the church's attitude today. So many times people, Christians, are clawing and scratching and cutting every corner they can to get every nickel they can possibly get their hand on. Legitimate or illegitimate. Legally or illegally. Because to them, the most important thing is what they've got. Not to be able to look around and say, everything I have is because God blessed me. Folks, let me tell you something. That is a great blessing. Because you know if God gave it to you, nobody can take it away. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. You make yourself rich, there's a lot of sorrow with that. So we see Abraham developing. We see his attitude, his attitude toward the Word of God. We see his attitude developing toward obedience to the Word of God and the result therein. In other words, it's the same as the New Testament equivalent of adding experience to your faith. He's growing in the things of God. Chapter 15 is very interesting. 
Because it tells us the fourth time. Here's the fourth time that God appears to Abram. And the Lord, after these things, the word of the Lord came into Abram in a, in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, folks, Abram's already rich. Silver, cattle, and gold. He's already very rich. But I want you to notice something. When God appears to him next, after he says, I've t- committed myself to God that nobody is going to be able to say that they added anything to me. Only God has blessed me. Once, God, once Abram makes that commitment to God, then immediately... The Bible tells us that God appears to him again and says, Fear not, Abram, I am, your, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. This phrase is very, very interesting. In the King James, it, it uh, translates kind of, you know, sound, it makes a nice little religious sound. But it means this. It means I am your shield, particularly I am your protector. And then it says I am your exceeding great reward. What that literally says is I am your vehemently increasing payment. Payment as in wages. He says, I am the one that will vehemently. It's a word that includes violence. It's God's attitude toward those that will be doers of his word. He says, I am absolutely, emphatically, with purpose, your wage payer. And you are always up for a raise. That's what it means. I'm your vehemently increasing payment. Some people bless their hearts. Bless their hearts. Well, Pastor Mike, I just don't see the, I just don't see the benefit in, in serving God like you talk about. Man, I do. That's another one of those points that I get. I just don't see the point. I do. I do. Now, in the midst of this, Abram starts talking to God, and he talks to him really plain. Folks, I would encourage you, if your prayer life is filled with these and thous, start over. Talk to God like he's sitting with you. The whole reason that God did away with the priesthood is that you wouldn't have these these and thous and somebody in between and somebody acting religious between you and God. Jesus said to his disciples... When he was about to embark in his greatest work, he said, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends. Jesus is supposed to be your friend. God is supposed to be your father. Abraham talks to him like he's his friend. And he didn't have half what you have. So Abraham said, Lord, what will you give me seeing I go childless? And this is the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. He's saying, now, Lord, you promised that you'd bless me. You promised that you'd, you'd make my name great. You'd promised me that I'd have children. But here we are, 10 years later, and all I've got is this servant. And if something happens to me right now, he's the one that gets everything I've got. Man, you have blessed me. I am overflowing with blessings. But it all goes to him. He's not even my son. And the Lord said, verse 4, This shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. You know what God is saying? He's saying, It'll be just like I told you to begin with. And here's an even greater example for you to understand how great it's going to be. But it's not yet time. 
You know one of the hardest things for me as a believer? Waiting. I'm 56 and a half years old. That half is really important to me. Because I know as much as I know my name, some things that are going to happen when I'm 60. I knew some things that were going to happen with 55, and they did. I know some things that are going to happen when I'm 60, and they will. And I am doing everything I can. I mean, it is, it is the hardest thing in the world for me not to try to move God up from 50, 60 to 56 and a half. I've made every case possible. The Bible says, please your case. Now, Lord, here's why it would be better at 56. Really? I got some good cases. I got some real good arguments. Sometimes the hardest thing in the world to be still and be steady. So many times people think this prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I use that one all the time. But it has nothing to do with what belongs to me. But I pray that prayer a lot concerning the future. Lord, I want it now, but not my will, your will be done. Lord, I don't want to wait till I'm 60. I want it now at 56. Actually, by Friday would be really good. There's some things that take time. There are some things you don't even know why the time's not right yet. That's what the Lord is telling him. He's telling the time's not right. Now, personally, I believe that the reason the time's not right is because it's not impossible enough yet for God to do. He's only 85. He can still have kids. Well, he does in the next chapter. I think there are some things that are necessary to wait until you know that only God could do it. And if we got things the way that we wanted when we wanted them, we'd be tempted to think that we had more to do with it than we really do. So the Lord speaks to him this fourth time in 10 years, fourth time that he says to him about his children. Or appears to him in some form. Verse 7. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord, how will I know? I love this. How will I know that I'm going to inherit it? How will I know? Give me a sign. Give me something that will show me. He didn't have the written word that you and I do. He didn't have a document that identifies these things as they happened. We don't have any reason to think, any indication whatsoever, that he's writing these things down. He's just committing them to his heart. So he says, Lord, how do I know? You know as well as I do that things get kind of tough. You need to go back sometimes and remind yourself of what the promise of God was to you, don't you? Because even though it's in your heart, you think, well, okay, let's go back to the beginning here. How do we know? I do that a lot. Okay, Lord, how do I know? And I always go back to the Scripture. Because we've got the word. And the word of God is the will of God. And the word of God is his power. But Abraham doesn't have any of this. So he says, Lord, how do I know? How do I know? You know what God gives him? As a sign. Obedience to the word. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to prepare a sacrifice. I want you to cut a calf in half. 
I want you to do exactly what I tell you to do that shows the sign of two people making a covenant. Now, folks, covenants didn't start with God. Covenants didn't originate in the Bible, at least not that we have record of. You can go to every civilization from the beginning of historical records, and you can find in some manner, some way, some means of the blood covenant between people. It's not unique to the Bible. If it was unique to the Bible, Abraham wouldn't know what he's talking about when he tells him to do it because he's been an idol worshiper up until the last 10 years. But he gives him something to do. Please listen to what I said that. I said it on purpose. He gives him something to do as his sign that it's really true. Folks, obedience to the word is the sign. You need to know this. Obedience to the word is the sign. So Abram does exactly what he says. A deep sleep falls upon him. God shows him some things, even shows him some things about the future, even shows him some things about Jesus on the cross and his sacrifice. Offering up his own son. God offering up his own son for the sake of the people. Shows him some tremendous things. Now the next chapter, chapter 16, is where Abraham listens to his wife. Always a bad idea. No, not always a bad idea. Sometimes a bad idea. Abram listens to his wife who says, you know, we're getting too old for this. It's been too long. The promise has been too long. It's not going to work. Abram, that stuff you've been telling me that uh, up to this point, God's never appeared to Sarah. All she knows about God is what Abraham has told her. All this stuff you told me about God appearing to you and going to give you children, it's not going to happen. But we need a child. We don't need to give everything that you have to Eliezer or some other servant. So what we need is we need a child. So I'm going to give you my little slave girl, the servant, my handmaid. I'm going to give you her name is Hagar, and we're going to have a child, Ishmael. And Abraham says, she doesn't look too bad. Okay. And they have a child. Now, Abraham, we know Abram's 86. The Bible tells us the last, chapter, last verse of this chapter. It tells us that Abram's 86 when Ishmael is born. So we know that he's been walking with God for 11 years. Well, what do we know? We know that he has committed himself to God where his finances and his substance is concerned. We know that he's seen God multiple times and he's obeyed God in certain areas of his life. Now, what about this one? This would have been better for him to say, no, I'm not going to try to do it some other way. Folks, anytime you try to get God's blessing your own way, it always goes bad. And this one went bad not just for Abram, in his lifetime, but for all of his descendants' lifetimes. This is the, 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 the beginning. The struggle between Isaac and Ishmael is the struggle between the Arabs and the Jews. Every bit of trouble you got in the Middle East today is because of this action right here. Every bit of it. So he's 86. He's 86 when Ishmael is born. Now, the Bible tells us in chapter 17, skips forward to when he's 99 years old. God appears to him the sixth time. Six times. This is when God changes his name. Verse 5, neither shall, well, better read all of them. 
Verse 1, and when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. That seems to be a different instruction than he's given to him before. Up until this point, he's just been saying, go where I tell First time he said, go where I tell you to go. Every time after that, he said, here's the blessing that I'm going to give you. Here are the, th- the promises that I'm making to you. Now he's saying, okay, it's time for you to do the right thing. Well, I wish you'd have told him that back in chapter 15. Could have saved our world a lot of trouble. So he says, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. In other words, Abram, it's time. Now you're responsible. He hasn't been up to this point. But now he is. Now the responsibility that he's talking about is going to lead him to having the child. Up until this point, Abraham's been saying, well, yeah, but Lord, the promise you've made to me, it's not happened yet. And, you know, time's wasting and it's been a long time. Now God appears and says, okay, now you've got something to do with this. Now you have a responsibility. Walk before me and be thou perfect. I will make my covenant between you and thee, between me and thee, and will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, Abram even recognizes this is a different thing. He's talking to me in a different way. He's saying now's the time. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. Neither shall your name be any more called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham for a father of many nations I have made thee. Folks, I want you to notice the first thing God did when he said, Now you have responsibility. Now this is the guy that becomes fully persuaded. According to Romans 4.20, he becomes fully persuaded that what God promised, he was able also to perform. He wasn't persuaded in chapter 15. He certainly wasn't persuaded in chapter 16 when he took Hagar. If he had been, he wouldn't have. Wouldn't have taken it. Wouldn't have had anything to do with it. So he hadn't been fully persuaded up to this point. But now God is challenging him. He's telling him, you've got a responsibility. This fully persuaded stuff has a lot to do with you. And the first thing he does is change what he calls himself. Change Abram in what he calls himself. He changes his name. You know one of the biggest steps forward you can take in spiritual development? Start saying that you are the righteousness of God in Christ. Why? Because God says you are. Yeah, but I don't feel like I am. I know, that's why you need to say it. God gave him the name father of many nations before he's ever had another child. Ishmael is certainly not many nations, yet at least. He commands Abraham to start calling himself something different before he ever sees any difference. This is the first real, what we see at least, the first real operation of faith, doing something before it happens, saying something before it happens in operation in Abraham's life. This is what turns him into the father of faith. He changes his name. You know, the Bible says God has written a special name for you. A name that only he knows. Now, the devil will tell you that name is Doofus. <laughs> He'll show you all the reasons why. But it's not. So the first thing he does, he changes his name. Then he says in verse 6, And I will make you exceeding fruitful and make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your seed after you, and the generations, their generations for an everlasting covenant, 
to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land whereon thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Then God tells him what to do, gives him another sign. Here's a sign of obedience once again. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after you. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. The Bible says in verse 24 that Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. I have to not shiver every time I read that. (laughs) Folks, can you understand that that would not be his choice? There are some things that God tells you to do that seem uncomfortable. There are some things God directs you to do that you might think, yeah, I'd rather not do that. God speaks to him and says, uh, well, I'm running out of time. I don't read, want to read all this. Um, well, I've got to read some of it. Verse 15, and God said unto Abram, Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai anymore, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her and will give her a son, give thee a son of her also. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Now the margin of my Bible says rejoiced. I looked the word up. You know what it means? It means he laughed. Abraham is not great in faith at this point. He's hearing these things and he's thinking, well, this sounds good. But wait a minute, you're saying Sarah's going to be involved in it? Lord, have you seen Sarah? She's 90. Sorry, it just ain't happening. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, now here's how we know because of what he says after he laughs. He says, shall a child be born unto him that is 100 years old and shall Sarah that is 90 years old bear? He's laughing not only at what God said about him but also what he said about Sarah. In other words, what has happened since Abraham was about 85 years old to now that when he's 99 years old, he has lost any hope for anything happening through either him or Sarah, which is exactly, in my opinion, you judge it for yourself, but I believe that's exactly the reason why now is the time. If it had happened at 85, you would have said, well, boy, we just made it. If it happens at 190, 100 for him, 90 for her, There is no just making it. This has got to be God. Right? And Abraham said unto unto God, because he has lost hope in the promise of God coming to pass in his life. You ever lost hope in one of the promises of God? It's easy to do. You know the thing that always causes that? Delay. Delay. When the promises are delayed, that's exactly what the devil will use to try to tell you. It's too late. It's not happening now. So Abraham comes up with an alternative. He says, oh, Lord God, that Ishmael might live before you. I've already got a son, Lord. I've already got one. Just let the promises be his. And God said, Sarah, your wife shall bear thee a son indeed. And thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. 
Behold, I, will, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceeding, exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget and I will make him a great nation. But, verse 21, but my covenant will I establish with Isaac. Folks, I want you to understand something. This, this argument, centuries-old argument between the Arabs and the Jews, I want you to notice that the Arabs are blessed, but the covenant is Isaac's. Can you see that? He said, I heard what you asked me, Abraham, and I will bless Ishmael. I will bless his descendants. He'll be a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac. Folks, you hear a lot of things in the, in the secular realm about how they have equal claim. How both the Jews and the, the, well, now, not just the Arabs, but the Muslims, have equal claim on Jerusalem have equal claim on the land of Israel. They have equal claim because they're all the descendants of Abraham. That's not what God said. He said the blessing of Ishmael is he'll be a great nation. The blessing of Isaac is he's the one who's covenant. He's the one that has the covenant of Abraham. Now, what's the covenant of Abraham? God just showed him that the covenant of Abraham was included. Well, what, what part of the covenant with Abraham was that the land of Canaan would be theirs. Now, depending on what people's position is and where they want to be, they might not like that, but that's what God said. Verse 21, but my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. Now, folks, you know what's interesting about this? Let me show you how God works. God says this is how it's going to be, but you're going to have to believe God says to Abraham, Sarah is going to give birth a year from now. Well, assuming nine months of a pregnancy, a normal nine-month pregnancy, that means within three months, she's going to have to conceive. Now, that can't happen unless Abraham believes. Because the Word of God only comes to pass in those people's lives who exercise their authority to accept God's word to be true. So just like the Bible says Jesus died for the sins of the world, it still takes your faith to receive him as Lord and Savior. But here's how God speaks. Here's how God deals with his people. He said, this is the way it's going to be. I, I want you to understand that all of his covenant, everything that God planned, everything he's been working on for 25 years up to this point with Abraham depends on Abraham believing in God's word when it seems impossible. Yet God says, it'll be a year from now. Well, just a few verses before, Abraham's laughing. He's certainly not in faith. He's saying, I'm a 99, she's 90. Really? Children? By the way, it might interest you to know that Abraham, after he does believe God, winds up continuing having children till he's 122 years old. Men, when God zaps you by faith, it lasts a long time. (laughs) 
Chapter 18 tells us the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is something interesting in this story, however. Verse 9. The Lord and the two angels are there, and they said, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he says, She's in the tent where she's supposed to be. And he said... Old Testament, Old Testament. (laughs) And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it into the tent door, which was behind him. He said she was in the tent. He didn't say she wasn't eavesdropping. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So nothing has changed from whatever period of time. We don't know how long it was, but from whatever period of time in the previous chapter to now, nothing has changed. It may have been a week, it may have been a month, it may have been a couple of months. We don't know how long it was. But nothing has changed with either one of them physically. Her body's not functioning any different than it was in the previous chapter when God said that this time next year she'll bear a son. So she hears these things and she says, yes, be it unto me according to as thou hast spoken. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? In other words, I've wanted a child all my life, and now that I'm 90, I'm supposed to believe it's going to happen? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child with him old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Folks, I love this scripture. This is, uh, I've got about a thousand favorites, but this is on the list. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Every time the devil tells me it's not going to work, I come right back with this one. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And I, I, personal opinion, I believe this has a lot to do with getting her over into faith. Abraham's attitude has changed somewhat, even though his body hasn't. His attitude has changed a bit. You'll see in the way that he responds. Sarah has not. Now, remember the time before God appeared to Abraham talking about this. He hadn't appeared to Sarah at all. Now she's hearing the word of the Lord coming from these men. She knows it's got to be God. What would these men know about anything that's going on with them? It's got to be God. Now, we don't know if they recognize who they are. We don't know if they know that they're angels. We don't know if they know that Jesus is with the angels. The Bible doesn't tell us any of that. But she has to recognize the supernatural aspect because here's somebody talking about a promise that God made to them that wouldn't otherwise know. Right? So Sarah laughs and the Lord brings her back to it. Says, Abraham, why did she laugh? I love the fact that Abraham is being asked on behalf of his wife. Why did she laugh? (laughs) Well, Lord, I've been trying to get her in faith for 25 years. I, I don't know. Just haven't been able to get her there. Now, he does this. Because he knows she's listening. He said, why does Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life. And Sarah shall have a son. This is the first time she's heard it for herself. First time she hears it for herself. Then Sarah denied saying, I didn't laugh. No, I laughed not. For she was afraid. But he said, I don't know who the he is. I don't know if the he is Jesus or if the he is Abraham. I tend to think that it was Abraham who's agreeing with the Lord who said she laughed. But you decide for yourself. 
She said, no, I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did. And you know it. And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom and tells the story of what happened there. Now, we know the end of the story. Romans chapter 4 tells us that Abraham was fully persuaded. So from the time that Abraham is, is uh, uh, met by the Lord and has the promise of God in, uh, what is it, chapter 17? Yeah, the promise of God in chapter 17. Sarah's encounter with the Lord in chapter 18. We know that both he and she wind up in faith. The Bible identifies in Hebrews chapter 11 that Sarah was in the hall of fame of faith too. That she, by faith, she received strength to conceive seed. So she gets from her laughing over into faith. Abraham's getting from his laughing to be fully persuaded. We know that's great faith. Strong in faith. Giving glory to God. Fully persuaded. So we see that it happens. We see that this child is born. Now fast forward over to chapter 22. Can you imagine the joy that Abraham has at 100 years of age when finally the promise of God has come? Now, folks, there's a, there's a scripture. I think it's... Uh, Somebody have to check me out on this uh, reference. I think it's Proverbs chapter 13, verse... Uh, it's early in the chapter. I'm not sure which one, but it's in one of the first two, two, three, four verses of the chapter, if I've got it right. It says this. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. In other words, delay will cause you 12 what? 13, 12? Proverbs 13, 12? Okay. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. When the promise of God is delayed, that's exactly what the devil will use to try to question, did God really say? Or does it mean what it really says? Or maybe you're just the one that messed things up. He'll come at you with all kinds of things. The last part of the verse, however, is just as true. But when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. In other words, if you can keep from losing your hope just because there's a delay, there is heaven on earth ahead. Can you imagine the heaven on earth that Abraham and Sarah are experiencing with this new child, Isaac? But Isaac starts growing up. Fast forward another, what, 15 years maybe? The Bible says that God speaks to Abram again about this child. Now here's where the important part is. Notice it says beginning in verse 1. It said and it came to pass after these things. That God did tempt Abraham. Now this word tempt is used in a variety of ways. It literally means to test. It means to challenge. Now the Bible says God tempts no man with sin. James said that. James wrote to the church. Let no man say when he's tempted. I'm tempted of God. For God can neither tempt no man can tempt no one, neither can he be tempted with sin. So what is it telling us? It's telling us that God will never test you regarding sin, but he will test you regarding obedience. And he does that every day with the word of God. So in these days, Abraham was tested, and it's a test since it's from God. It's got to be a test regarding obedience. So he said... To Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom thou lovest. And get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham argued with God. Abraham's about 115 years old 
or so. Notice it says that Abraham rose up early in the morning and did it. Notice the difference between this and chapter 18 where the story about Solomon and Gomorrah is concerned. Where the, where the Lord and those two angels say, here's what we're going to do, Abraham. I've got to show you. I've got a covenant with you, so I've got to show you what we're going to do. We're going to destroy the city, see if the sin is what it said. And if so, we're going to destroy the city. That's when Abraham stands before the Lord and says, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Are you going to destroy the city if you can find 50 righteous people? Finally gets him down to 10. 45, 40, 30, 20. How about 10? Why why isn't Abraham negotiating with God over this? If I was Abraham, this would be a whole lot more important to me than killing a bunch of, uh, killing, destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Destroying people that are living in sin and were worthy of death. That wouldn't be nearly as important to me as my own son. Would it be to you? Yet there's no negotiation. There's no reasoning with God. There's no talking about, no, hold on. Now, the Orthodox Jews say that Abraham missed it. The Orthodox Jews say, and uh, where it says, offer your son as a burnt offering, this word that's translated here in the King James, uh, offer your son, means to lift him up. So the Orthodox Jews say that what God was telling Abraham to do was to lift up his son unto the Lord. Well, then where's the burnt offering come in? They say, well, he's supposed to lift him up as a burnt offering. You decide for yourself. I think Abraham knew exactly what God was telling him, and that's why he acted. But again, I want you to consider, why is he not trying to talk God out of this? This seems like taking away the very promise that he provided for him, doesn't it? So Abraham rose up early in the morning. Saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac and his son and clave the wood upon the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of the, that God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place far off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here, wait here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Now, folks, if there is ever a verse of Scripture that shows how Abraham has changed, this is it. The word come again is most often translated in the Scripture, return. Notice what Abraham says. He says, you guys stay here. Isaac and I are going to the mountain, and then we're coming back. What is Abraham expecting to happen? He's expecting Isaac to come back. Now, you remember the promise that was made in chapter 18, verse 21? He said, my covenant will I establish with Isaac. How can the covenant be realized if Isaac dies? Now, folks, we started off talking about the authority of the word. I want you to understand something. There are lots of times and lots of things that God will challenge you to set aside so that he can be first place in your life. Lots of things. Some, one of the first things that happens in the life of almost every Christian is concerning the tithe. Now, you stop and tell me, how does it make sense from a natural way of thinking? How does it make sense to give God 10% when the 100% you've got is not covering all the bills and everything that you need? If the 100% is not going to make it, how's the 90% going to make it? And that's exactly the place where a lot of people get to. 
God is asking us, and he asks us in a variety of ways. Like I said, um, uh, finances and the tithe is usually just the first one that we really come up on. It's the most common for us all. And that question always arises for us. How are we going to make it by giving God 10%? Well, it doesn't work on paper. It just doesn't. Now, folks, I would, I would suggest something very strongly to you. you. You judge this for yourself, but I would suggest something very strongly to you. You haven't tithed. If you've got 10% extra, you haven't really tithed. The tithe and the blessing of the tithe really comes in when you've got to make a choice. Am I going to give this 10% toward God and obey what his word says, or am I going to use it to pay these things that are necessary? Now, if you're facing that situation, please, please, please don't do it because I'm telling you to. Because I'm not going to pay your bills. This has nothing to do with you and me. But I'm here to tell you, if God is dealing with you, and I've never known anybody that he didn't deal with them in this, in this way, in this area. If God is dealing with you about putting his word first in some way that it makes it seem or appear to you that it won't work if you do it. That's exactly the test that Abraham had. Tithing is not giving God your extra. Tithing is putting God first. It's where you climb out there to the end of the limb. And if God doesn't come through, we're going down. Now you say things like that and and people will run off because they say, Oh, Pastor Mike told me that it'll work. Well, it will work, but it needs to work because you have a foundation of God's word and God's promise, not because of what I said. I know it'll work because I've got the foundation. You establish the foundation first. And then do what God tells you to do. But I see a lot of people doing this where where sickness and disease is concerned too. Now, please understand. And I know there's such an opportunity for people to misunderstand things here. So please listen carefully to what I'm trying to say and, and, and listen to me. I'm not against doctors. Thank God for doctors. I'm convinced the doctors have kept most Christians alive long enough to find out that healing belongs to them. I'm not against doctors, and I'm not against doctors, the treatment that they suggest or whatever. That doesn't mean I think they're always right. I I think most doctors are honest and sincere, and they do the best they can. But if you're facing sickness, if you're facing cancer, if you're facing something serious like this, if you put the doctor first in your life, don't expect to have the help of God. Now, what are you saying, Pastor Mike? You're saying we should stop our cancer treatment? I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying you need to make the cancer treatment and the doctor's advice and whatever else secondary to the fact that the Bible says that Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. It may not change anything in the way you do it, or it may not change anything you do, but it will change things in the way you do it. For example, you can take medication in faith, or you can take medication because the doctor said so and it's your, la- your last and your only hope. Taking it in faith will work. Taking it because it's your last or your only hope might not. And so many times you see things in the body of Christ where it raises questions and controversy. Well, why did this dear saint of God die? A lot of times dear saints of God die because they put the doctor above God. If nothing more than just in their attitude. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, are you saying we shouldn't listen to doctors? No, I'm saying get God's mind on it first. 
and then do whatever you have a peace about. So many times I have people saying, Pastor Mike, I'm believing God for healing, but the doctor says do this. What should we do? I always counsel people to do it. Do what the doctor's telling them to do. Mix faith with what the doctor's saying. Yeah, but doesn't that mean I'm not believing God? No. Medicine, treatment has nothing to do with faith. People take cancer treatments all the time and die from them. Other people take cancer treatments, the same cancer treatments in the same situations, having mixed faith with it, it produces results. Yeah, but I just thought if we were in faith, if we were really believing God, we just should throw away our medicine. Don't be stupid. You don't throw away your deodorant because you're believing God, do you? I've, I've had to challenge people on that. Well, Pastor Mike, your position on faith and medicine, you're just not strong in faith. If you were strong, in, I had one guy tell me, if you were just strong in faith like me, you wouldn't need any medicine. I said, brother, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, do you take deodorant? Do you use deodorant? Well, of course. I said, I would have thought your faith would have been strong enough not to need that. Folks, we live in natural bodies. God won't allow, God won't support. Certainly he'll allow. But God won't support you putting anything above him. That's what this is about. And notice Abraham's attitude toward it. He says, both of us are coming back. Both of us are coming back. Why? Because Abraham knows, I've got a covenant that's supposed to last for generations through Isaac. He didn't have any kids yet. He can't die on this mountain. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, I think it is. It's talking about the heroes of faith. And it says, Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. And even, some translations say it this way, and even received him as such already. You want to see a man that's fully persuaded? Here in verse, what is it, verse 5? where he says, we're going to go to the mountain and both of us are coming back. That's a man that's fully persuaded. No fanfare. No explanation. They start going up onto the mountain. Isaac's carrying all the stuff. He says, Dad, we've got everything except, the, except something to sacrifice. We don't have a lamb to sacrifice. So he must have done this before. His father must have taught him enough to where he's got information about this. He said, we've got everything except the sacrifice. And Abraham says, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. Now, the word provide means to see. It means to see. So he says God's going to show his own sacrifice. Well, what's his sacrifice? I believe he's speaking prophetically about Jesus because he says the sacrifice that God will show is himself. So he lays him out on the altar, sets everything up. Finally, he says, now, Isaac, I need you to lay down here. What for, Dad? Well, the Lord told me to offer you up as the burnt offering. Really? What kind of conversation do you think Abraham had with Isaac? If it was me, I can't speak for Abraham. But if it was me, I would tell him everything that God had ever told me. My, my trip up the mountain with him would have been telling me, let me tell you the first time God ever appeared to me and what he told me. Let me tell you the next time he appeared to me. Let me tell you what he did. Then he showed up and gave me a promise where he showed me the stars of the sky. 
and the sand on the seashore. And he said, that's the, the, the descendants that, that I would have through you. That means your descendants are part of that promise. I would have told him everything that God had ever intimated. I would have told him the supernatural things. I would have told him about defeating the five enemy armies with just my household help. I would have told him every supernatural thing that God ever did in my life. And then when I laid him on the altar, I would have said, Now, Isaac, I want you to understand something. You and I both have a promise from God. God's promise is that the sand of the seashore would be like your descendants, not just mine, but they would come through you. So, son, I need you to trust me here. I'm trusting God. I need you to trust me. He does everything the way that he's supposed to do it. Would he have talked to him about, listen, I don't know how this is going to go. If we go through with this, God will raise you from the dead. That might have been a tough for a teenage boy. What would you say? But the time comes where he raises the knife and the angel stops him and says, now. Notice what the angel says to him. The angel says, verse 12, Lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And that's when he looks up and they find the animal to sacrifice stuck in the, the bushes over there. And they offer this burnt offering, offer the sacrifice, and on the way down the mountain, can you imagine that conversation? Dad, what would you have done if you had had to go through it? If the angel hadn't come through, would you have, would you have done it? Yes, son, I would have had to. Really? You believe God that much? He said, yeah. He would have told him, yeah. And I knew. You remember before we ever left, I told him, told the two servants that both of us were coming back. If it was necessary for God to raise you back up from the dead, that's what he would have done. As far as I was concerned, it was already accomplished. Can you imagine? I put myself in Abraham's position as a father. Put yourself in Isaac's position. You're coming down off that mountain with a confidence of the truth of God's word, the authority of God's word about your life that nothing else could produce. Can I ask you a question? Is Isaac's promise more sure than yours? Not one little bit. You have just as great an assurance of the plan of God for your life and the promise of God realized in your life as Isaac had. Even to the point that if God would have had to raise him from the dead to accomplish it, piece of cake. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God for anything that needs to be done. That's the same word that's been given to you and me. That's how real God's promise is to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is true. But more than that, Father, it is the truth. That means there's nothing in heaven, earth, or hell that can stop your plan for our individual lives from being realized if we will believe, just like Abraham did. Sickness can't take us in Jesus' name. The devil can't steal from us in Jesus' name. Oh, he might throw up a few roadblocks here and there. 
but his plans and his purposes won't prosper against us. Because of the promise of God, we are righteous. And whenever we step out upon your word, it must be done. In the name of Jesus. Oh, Father, help us to be like Abraham and help us to be like Isaac. Father, we have even greater reason to believe you than Abraham did. For you have done so many things for us in so many ways. We have your word. We have the fulfillment of the covenant through the sacrifice of Jesus that that Abraham just had a vision of. Oh, Father, forgive us for ever having doubted you. We declare, Father, that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. If you have to rearrange the laws of nature for your word to come to pass, Father, you'll do it. If it takes stopping the sun like you did for Joshua, you'll do that. If it takes walking on the water like you did for Jesus, you'll do that. If it takes causing an axe head to float like you did for Elijah, you'll do that. If it takes multiplying the loaves and the fishes like you did for Jesus, you'll do that too. There is nothing in this world that can stop your word from being real in our lives if we will simply believe simply believe simply believe we worship you Father we thank you for your goodness we thank you thank you for your plan your purpose for our lives we bless your holy name we bless your holy name We bless your holy name. Amen. Let's all stand together. I want to lead you in a confession before we go. So I want you to close one. (laughs) I started to say close one eye. (laughs) Raise one hand toward heaven and close your eyes. Say this after me. I believe God's Word is true. Whatever it takes for God's Word to come to pass in my life, so be it. There's nothing the devil can do to overcome God's Word becoming real for me. In Jesus' name. I declare... Victory is mine in Jesus' name because nothing is too hard for the Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Come on back and be with us at uh, 5 o'clock for healing school and 6 o'clock for, I'm sorry, 5 o'clock for prayer school, 6 o'clock for healing school if you can. Have a great day.